and the world. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on what time you're watching this. I'm Chris Carrado, your host of Rock Hill Video. Um, as I to say before every show starts, um, all of our guests are welcome to come on here. It doesn't matter what their political beliefs are. Everyone gets a fair shot. This is a uh, forum for anyone, regardless of affiliation, to come on and talk about the issues and uh, just say how they feel about what's going on. Um, most of the time we do have um, elected officials or those running to be um, elected. If I said that right, I might have messed that up. But anyway, <laughs> um, and then sometimes we've had athletes on and uh, different people in, in entertainment. Uh, so today we do have somebody who is running for office. And like I always say, as, as a code of ethics, um, when I did go to Winthrop University, which is in Rock Hill, South Carolina, um, I did study to be a journalist, and you know when we're doing the news, we want to make sure everyone feels comfortable to come on here. Uh, nobody's going to get bashed, nobody's going to get praised. And um, if our guest today were to come on to debate somebody, um, she would be treated with the same respect as the other person. Nobody gets talked over or gets extra time because I may agree with them and feel they should get more time. Or if I don't agree with them, I should yell at them and not let them talk, <laughs> which we see on a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of. Uh, news outlets. So today is uh, Tuesday. It's January 19th, 2021. Over here on Eastern Standard Time, it's 3.06 p.m. And our guest today is Kim Ruff. So Kim, thank Hi. you. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So Kim, what would you like to share about um, early life, upbringing, family life for our viewers? Sure. Okay. Uh, I am born and raised in Arizona. I'm from Phoenix originally. My parents are still married. My family is, uh, my father's a small business owner. It was started by my grandfather in the 1960s, and my father currently runs a steel fabrication plant in South Phoenix. So I worked for him for about 11 years after graduating from ASU with my dual baccalaureates in political science and communication, and that put me in constant contact with the copper mines here in Arizona. And then I pivoted to work as an operations director for a steel and plastic fabricator for about two and a half years. And then most recently, I was an estimator for a, nation, a nationwide structural steel fabricator. So I have a lot of experience working in fabrication and manufacturing, and then, of course, being in one particular aspect of that supply chain. In terms of my political affiliation, I changed political parties in 2005. I actually was a member of the Republican Party. It was just kind of a thing because my folks were, so it's, you, know, you sort of just end up being what your parents are. But seeing their response to uh, the attacks on the World Trade Center and how they chose to use that as justification to go back into Iraq and then start the war in Afghanistan, which at this point now has lasted longer than Vietnam, was a huge reason for my, my choosing to jump ship and become a libertarian. But I didn't get involved until about 2009 after I graduated from ASU, and I've done a variety of roles since then. I've worked in intra-party politics, sitting on committees, being an officer in various groups or caucuses or, or county affiliates. And then most recently, I ran for president. I was one of the candidates seeking the Libertarian Party's nomination for president in 2020 before withdrawing early in January of last year. And now I am running for Arizona State Mine Inspector. So that's a little bit of my background. Wow, okay. I, I didn't even know that you had, uh, had thought about making a run for the president. Okay, that's awesome. Is that something you think you might try again? You know, it, in order 
At present, I'm going to say no. I mean, it really just depends because we're talking about three and a half years from now, and it really would behoove anyone who's seriously going to make a stab for that role that they hit the ground running now because you really have to build up the infrastructure and momentum, which which we did. But um, given the volume of topics that you have to talk about and really be a subject matter expert on, I don't know that I would feel comfortable doing it again. At the time, it was primarily focused on education, and a lot of what we discussed was strictly in the scope of office. So, you know, if somebody asked us about abortion, per se, I could tell them my opinion on it, but in terms of whether or not the president deals with it, the president doesn't. So I would, I would be very, very hesitant to do it again. It's a huge undertaking and something that any candidate that we support really needs to be prepared to do and go all the way. And, you know, I was at the time, but then some circumstances had changed in my life, and that led me to withdrawing early. You know, rather than clog up or clutter the race, because of vanity, I figured it would behoove me to step back and, and allow the other very good candidates to, to go forward and, and get the support of the base. Okay. So you live out in Arizona. It sounds like you've pretty much lived all your life out there. Is that what I heard? Just about, yeah, with the exception of about six months where I was in Little Rock, Arkansas, and then about a year when I lived in Lockport, New York, I've lived in Arizona the entirety of my life. And contextually, that happened because my first husband was in the Air Force, and okay. so it was for the sake of training and then change of station. Okay. Um, what else can you tell us about Arizona as far as, you know, what, that, what it's known for? Okay, well, uh, I'll give you my normal, welcome to Arizona, you should, you should come visit. So a lot of people labor under the misapprehension that all of Arizona is essentially a desert and that we get temperatures up to 120 degrees, which is sort of true. In central and southern Arizona, we have the Sonoran Desert, and it, we do indeed get really high temperatures. It is very arid, but the Sonoran Desert is quite lovely. And it is but one portion of our overall state. We actually have seven different climate zones, ranging from low desert to tundra, mm. including, you know, we've got the Grand Canyon, Canyon to Shea, Petrified Forest. We also have things like um, ruins from all the various different tribes that have lived here. I mean, quite a few Native American tribes lived in Arizona and still do. They are on tribal land. We've got a rich history in mining, so there's a lot of abandoned ghost towns that people, you know, people came in in the 1800s and they set up shop and built a boom town and then it went bust. So we've got a lot of those abandoned towns. There's, it's just beautiful. And anybody who is a big traveler, likes to go hiking, and particularly enjoys road trips, Arizona is a fantastic state. And we do have water, people. <laughs> we do have water. Some of our areas are suffering from a 2,300-year drought. I mean, it is, it is pretty bad. We do have certain places like Goodyear, for example, and El Mirage. Those cities are building out, and they're very dependent on our water supply here in central Arizona, which is brought in through the Colorado River, the Salt River as well. And then we use a lot of irrigation to get it around. But we also have Lake Havasu, which is essentially a beach. I mean, it's a lake, but it has a sandy beach. And then we've got a bunch of other lakes as well and rivers and, and tributaries. So we're very, we have a lot of variety in our state. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that, that was a misconception about, you know, where I grew up in New York, that everything, the whole state was Manhattan. So it's, right, yeah. right, and having lived in western New York, it is not. <laughs> like a very small portion is downstate, but the balance of it is incredibly rural. Yeah. Like upstate is very rural, very bucolic, spread out, and a completely different animal when dealing with constituents. You know, there, there's a different mentality in western and upstate New York than there is in downstate. So, yeah, you're right. Like not all of New York is Manhattan. 
what, what else can you share with us about as far as the work you do in your career? Anything else you want to talk about? Well, a lot of what I did in my previous job when I was the operations director was I was responsible for overseeing all the various different departments. The company that I worked for was we catered to the semiconductor and high purity industries. So we would deal with those companies and then we would fabricate, which were essentially plumbing skids that were supposed to be used on site. Like a major project that we worked on was Intel was trying to get ahead of the EPA. And in order to do that, they had proposed this much more sophisticated filtration system. And so the company that I worked for had gotten awarded the contract from the, the main contractor. We were a subcontractor. And then we built a lot of those skids. It was their design, their, their proposal, but we were the ones who fabricated and put it together and then had it delivered and installed on site. So I worked with you know, the salespeople in terms of tracking what they were doing, seeing where they were on the sales pipeline. I worked with our design team to make sure that their their designs matched the plumbing and instrument diagrams that were supplied by the, the contractor so that we were in compliance. So I also oversaw safety issues, which dovetails perfectly into the role that I'm seeking. Uh, dealt with contracts reviewing contracts and collaborating with lawyers on that as well, putting together a production schedule and making sure that what we built was on time and correct. So a lot of, a lot of moving parts, but yeah, it was very good. It was an enjoyable job for sure. I, I definitely, Can you still hear me okay? Hey, can you hear me okay? Okay. Hey, can you hear me okay now?
froze again. I can hear you now. I think I lost you for a little bit, Kim. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, I, I, we lost you for a little bit. Okay, was it you or me? I went to check my internet and it shows it's still connected, so I'm not sure what exactly happened. I, you just froze and we, we can edit all that out. I'll let, I'll let Tad know. Um, so basically... Do you want to pick it up from that last question or do you want to just move on to the next one? We were, I think we were talking about what, uh, what you were doing for a living and like... Um, I think the, the the last thing I heard was uh, we were we were about to get into uh, about how it's not all desert out that way and just like all of New York is in Manhattan, obviously. And uh, if you just want to pick it up, um, what else you could share with us about the uh, Arizona area? Oh, okay. Um... Well, in terms of the role that I'm seeking, the Arizona State Mine Inspector oversees the almost 500 active mines that we currently have here. And we have a long tradition of working in mining. So it is a huge part of our economy. It's actually one of the five C's of the Arizona economy alongside cotton, uh, cattle, citrus, and climate. So it stands for copper, and it's just a, it's been a huge part of our lives. And in fact, the reason why I even had to interface with the mines is because a lot of what we fabricated for my family's business went directly to the copper mines to help them in the process of production. So I, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm a little, okay. <laughs> a little flustered. <laughs> so you said 500 mines, you all, 500 mines. 500 wow. active mines, but we have a lot more that are classified as inactive, and then wow. we also have quite a few that are quote-unquote abandoned or closed, but the, a lot of mines are hesitant to even classify themselves as anything other than active or inactive, because if you are indeed closed, that's when you go into what's called remediation and that's, or reclamation, and that's where you effectively try to basically reintegrate the tailings and the production back into the environment so that you don't leave a footprint and that you don't negatively impact the environment. Okay. Okay. So that, okay. That's when you were talking about, um, the EPA. Okay. Got it. All right. Wow. That's, so you'd be in charge of 500 active mines inspecting them. To some extent, yes. Wow. So the office of the Arizona State Mine Inspector actually has quite a few people working in it. It's not huge. Like, I think their operating budget is about $2 million annually. But you have two active people who are responsible for inspecting mines. And according to MSHA, you have to have them do surface mines two times a year, do an inspection. And underground mines, you have to do four times a year. So there's two people who are splitting the difference twice or four times a year on almost 500 active mine sites. And that includes things like sand and gravel out in addition to, you know, surface copper mines. On top of that, we also have one person who works in reclamation, and her job is specifically to look at the proposals by any new plans and then make sure that there's compliance or adherence if they choose to go from active to inactive and eventually closed. Wow. We also have four people that work in the part of instruction and education. So we've got certified MSHA trainers who are responsible for imparting this knowledge any contractors 
miners who are going to go on site. You need to have your specific training, get your MSHA certification, which looks like this, and then take it on site, do site specific training before you set foot on it. And then the other aspect of it is that one person, I believe, who is responsible for finding the 150 plus abandoned mine shafts littered across public property and effectively dealing with them. So that's, those are all the aspects of it. But the Arizona State Mine Inspector, the elected position itself, is essentially a functional liaison between the mining industry, the community, legislators, and then, of course, the office itself. So most of what our sitting office holder, which is Joe Hart, uh, does is he spends a lot of his time on the legislative floor giving his expert feedback on things that are being proposed and how they pertain to the mining industry and whether or not it's superfluous or redundant or necessary. Hmm. So there is definitely a major political component to it, even though a lot of it really plays into my professional background as well. Okay. So obviously a lot of, a lot of safety issues, I'm sure, when you're working in a mine that you got to know about and make sure that they are adhering to the laws, I guess. Right. The way that it's structured right now is that, and so Arizona is the only state in the union that has a state mine inspector, even though we are not obviously the only state in the union that does mining. Most of it is being done by the federal agency, which is MSHA, and that stands for Mine Safety and Hazard Association. They're nested under the Department of Labor. And so what they do is that, again, those two times a year for surface mines, four times a year for underground mines, they have inspectors that go on site. But what MSHA does, and this is something that I really want to counterbalance, is that they lead by enforcement and citation first. They'll go on site, they'll check things that seem as innocuous as like not setting your parking brake or chalking your tires. That's a write-up, and that becomes something where you're a habitual offender. And so if they come back on a site later and you have made that same mistake, even if it's just one person out of a fleet of 300 vehicles, that's a citation, and it's exponentially more. So they lead by enforcement, whereas the Arizona State Mine Inspector's Office really tries to build a collaborative relationship with the community and, you know, basically try to nip it in the bud before it becomes problematic. Citation is something that we do very last. First is education, training, and collaboration. So my position on it and why I think it's necessary to have it at the state level is because as of yet, I cannot see a rational constitutional basis for federal oversight in this industry, not even in terms of the Interstate Commerce Clause, which is often used as a justification for federal oversight. Okay. There's actually a 1936 Supreme Court case, which was Carter versus Carter Coal Company, and they addressed that issue. In a 5-4 to four decision, the Supreme Court decided that no, the federal government doesn't have any role in oversight and mining because it doesn't pertain to interstate commerce, not the mining process itself. So despite that, it, we still had the Bureau of Mines, and then that rolled into uh, MESA, which was another organization, and then in 1977, they passed the Mine Safety and Health Act under Jimmy Carter, and that established MSHA. And so MSHA is the major oversight that basically goes in and tells these state-based organizations whether or not they have a right to, to do what they're doing and, and leads by enforcement. So... I see us as being a functional bulwark between our industry here in Arizona and the federal government. And I don't see the necessity or efficacy, excuse me, I don't see the necessity or efficacy of having the federal government do what we are already doing in accordance with the 10th Amendment here in Arizona. Got it. Okay. So you would you have to travel all around the state or is 
Yeah, I mean, certainly for the campaign itself, I'm going to have to make a, a concerted effort to build out those relationships and lean on some of my contacts at the mine. So there will be definitely a lot of travel anyway. And even though technically when I take office, I'll spend most of my time at the Capitol in the legislature, I will still make an effort to build those relationships with stakeholders because it's important that they know who's representing them and they're able to communicate with them directly. Wow. Okay. Um, what else would you like to share about the Libertarian Party and why you decided to um, go that with that party? What um, specifics, if any? Well, there's been, you know, it's interesting that we are at the very point in time that we are, and a lot of people are suddenly waking up to the reality that we have divested our federal government completely from the Constitution. But the reason why I even got involved in this in the first place is because I saw that there was gross overreach of governmental agencies, both on the local, state, and federal level, and that it was important that we remember what our foundational principles were as a country, and we were... We adhered to those founding documents because this is our this is the government's covenant with the people. Like we will only do these things and we won't do anything else. Everything else should be reserved for, you know, tenth amendments of state powers and then of course most and primarily are gonna be the individuals first. But we don't look at things that way anymore. Now we look at government as being this cure-all for whatever ails us, whether or not it's the responsible role of government in the first place. And we ignore the fact that government, lacking any sort of competition, is not something that you can opt out of. You can elect a different representative, yes, but it's still the same core people, same core groups and interests that continue to re-up and get rehired and get appointed over and over and over again. And they're making decisions about how the rest of our lives should be managed across all boards. You know, you're talking about who you can have a relationship with and get married to all the way to, you know, how you can run your business. And so my feeling on it is, and the reason why I got active is because as much as I would like to opt out, as much as I would love to live you know, in the great northern portion of Arizona by myself and have a little ranch and farm, I don't have that luxury because we don't have the ability to opt out. And as we've seen historically, anytime you do have a group of people who try to go off the grid or opt out of the government, the government doesn't take too kindly to it, and then they burn them all down. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, like, let's be honest. So that's kind of where I am at now. I think it's uh, the reason why I did the Libertarian Party is because they do emphasize that regardless of the existence of governments, you have a natural right to life, liberty, and justly acquired property. That is sacrosanct. That is non-negotiable. And if you are going to have a government, the single and sole role of it is to protect and preserve those natural rights. That's it. Anything above and beyond that is scope creep. And scope creep for anyone who's ever worked in manufacturing is absolutely problematic. So that's kind of where I got involved, and then running as a candidate was just sort of an evolution of things. Initially, I used to be really timid about being in front of the camera, but, you know, you believe what you believe, and when you're passionate about it, it translates when you communicate it. And it's important for all of us to seek out roles that marry our experience and work toward our strengths and then and run for office and use that as an opportunity to speak to people about these ideas. And this actually, you know, as seemingly unrelated as the state mine inspector position is, one of the core things that I want to impress upon people and what will be told to you by anyone who teaches safety training is that you as an individual own your safety. Yes, it's important that your mine owners and operators institute a workplace 
of safety. And it's important that you have these tools and skills and resources before you, but ultimately you make the decision whether or not you're going to take the extra time to wear the appropriate equipment before entering into a mine site. You make the decision whether or not you're going to take a shortcut. And if I can reteach people to take ownership of their own well-being, that is absolutely the core of libertarianism. Self-ownership is is the guiding principle. You own yourself and you have a responsibility to do right by yourself. Federal government's not gonna save you. Your state government isn't gonna save you. Ultimately, it comes down to you and the choices you make. Yeah, thank you, Kim. Um, as far as accomplishments that you've already uh, succeeded at, what would you like to share about that? It, it doesn't even have to be political. It could be anything you'd like to share. <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, let's see. Hmm. What are braggable things? <laughs> well, I suppose probably the obvious answer for a parent is having my children. My children are my absolute world and one of the prime movers for me to even be as active in politics as I am, you know, because ultimately they're going to have to inherit this world and God forbid it's more of a mess than when I came into it. Um, so there is that. I am a very accomplished writer. I've been published in periodicals, one of which for about 10 years I wrote a recurring column in was called Ion Arizona. It's a GLBT mm. magazine. So I spent a, I would review movies oh. <laughs> that were specific to the community and, and I wrote movie reviews. So I did that for a while and that was a really good experience. Um, I wrote a paper in 2009 that looked at the narrative paradigm which is a communication theory, and I compared it to the 9-11 truth movement, and that was something that I presented at a conference of undergraduate students that were majoring in communication and that was also published in a periodical. So I've done stuff like that. Um, mostly I just ghostwrite for other people. Like there are people who are familiar with my style of communication can spot it when other people read my stuff. But <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's mostly it. It's, it's just writing. So. Okay. What and what other future plans do you have to accomplish? And that could be political or not. Whatever you want to share. Well, I think the next thing that I really want to do is I would really like to get my EMR certification. I think it's incredibly important to have those skills and abilities. Um, you know, there's a, a small amount of CPR and first aid training that you do in order to get your MSHA certification. But I would really like to know a heck of a lot more. So that if there is a disaster or a tragedy, I could be on the front lines and respond to it adequately and appropriately. So that's that's actually the next big thing for me is I want to get my EMR certification. EMR, okay. And uh, you know, I'm sure come 2022 you're going to have to be debating and uh, going up against other candidates. And um, you know, if someone were to fight, I'd ask you, hey, why, why should you be elected, Kim? What, what would you tell them? Why me over anybody else or, okay. Yeah, over them or just in general? Well, I think probably the best reason to elect me over anyone else is that I am completely untethered, which is to say that I have nobody pulling my strings. The guiding principles that I have are with me always, regardless of party affiliation or any relationships that I have. So I don't think that anyone needs to ever worry about me being in someone else's pocket or working on behalf of someone else's interests. When I analyze situations, I make a concerted effort to research it and understand all aspects of it. And I will communicate with people in the communi community about it because 
who better to advise me on it than the people who are directly impacted by it? So I come from it from a very rational perspective, and I see the office as one of being public service, which is what it is, but we don't usually look at elected officials like that anymore. The constituents of Arizona, if they choose to elect me, I represent them and their interests just as much as I represent the interests of mine owners and operators as well as miners themselves. And so everything that I do is from that framework and is done with them in mind. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is that coming from the background that I do and being a native Arizonan who's deeply passionate about our history and who we are as people, I am motivated in order to do a good job and do it right because I want Arizona to be successful. I want us to be a great state, and I think we have the capacity to be so. Okay. Um, anything else you wanted to share as far as big, biggest challenges coming your way? Well, you know, based on my experience having worked in this industry for as long as I have, there is always going to be a bit of a challenge. And I don't, I am not the first person to cry sexism at all. But you, as a woman, you do have to work quite a bit harder to illustrate your knowledge. You know, basically prove out that you have the knowledge, skills, and abilities to do what you're doing. So I, that, I think that's actually why I work so hard to do so much research and analysis before I make statements is that I want to make sure that my stuff is correct, that I'm putting out the right information, that I'm educating people appropriately, and I know what I'm talking about. So there is that aspect. There is going to be a, some doubt from people about my capabilities or my knowledge, and I understand and respect that, and again, I will collaborate with the community to make sure I fill those deficits. But the other thing, of course, that I'm going to deal with is because of the fact that we're dealing with this widespread mentality about government being the cure-all, when I had talked about in other threads, you know, basically challenging the legitimacy of MSHA as far as overseeing Arizona mining operations go, I had people tell me, well, if it wasn't for MSHA, I or someone else in the industry would be dead, which to me begs the question, if you didn't have the federal government in your business, you would be more likely to take extraordinary risks of safety. Like if you didn't have the federal government telling you maybe you shouldn't go and touch an energized piece of equipment with, with something that's a conductive, you would have just done it willy-nilly. I find that hard to believe. So we've had enough evolution in technology and the industry that we have automated a lot of things that previously were done by people. So that eliminates the possibility of those disasters happening. We've also had a major cultural shift towards safety over the last 100 years. So again, that's also had a major impact. The federal government you know, they can put out guidelines and they can enforce them, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're right. And in fact, we have seen cases where MSHA has been absolutely wrong and was incapable of preventing a disaster. So I will have to deal with some of those uh, that pushback, you know, that if the government wasn't in my business, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing as well as I, I am. But uh, I think there's plenty of fact-based examples that disprove that belief. And certainly, I do not want people to die. I think that's a horrible tragedy. And I don't think that any mine owners want people to die either, which is precisely why they have these policies independent of MSHA. Got it. OK. Um, just a question I wanted to, wanted to throw in there about when it comes to the EPA. Um, you hear things like, oh, you know, like, you know, libertarians want limited government. so. They would want to uh, abolish the EPA. What do you think about that? 
Well, I think ultimately that is something that we should do. I think probably one of the more rational ways of handling it is kind of how we've done in Arizona with this role in response to MSHA. Now, granted, we predate it by about 65 years. We were codified in our constitution in 1912, whereas MSHA itself didn't exist until 1977. But we, uh, you know, we have somebody at a state level that handles those things. And so in order for us to dial back the influence of the federal government and really kind of get them retethered to their constitutional more is to create that role at a local or state level or partner with independent non-governmental organizations that are already doing these things. There are quite possibly 501c3 nonprofits that are engaging in education and training wholly independent of these elected offices. And there are people that are watchdogs on this. I mean, there are apps you get now for your phone with respect to environmental issues. And you can look at the ratings of various companies and see, you know, this company is responsible for poisoning the waterway over here. Do you really want to patronize them? And then have everyone become an educated consumer and vote with their wallet as opposed to, you know, going to the ballot box to make it happen. I think that there's absolutely a free market solution. And the advent of technology has really allowed us to bridge that gap a heck of a lot more than we could 100 years ago. Got it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, Kim, um, and once again, this could be politically or just in general, you know, what do you want people to know about you? Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Um, hmm. What do I want them to know about me? I think probably... I think probably the thing I would want them to know about me the most or the impression that I want them to get about me is that I hope that they understand that while I have this experience and while I do consider myself qualified and suited for this role, I am also a human being who has lived and experienced just like anyone else has. And, you know, I'm, I'm very ordinary and average, which is a good thing, I think, when you're looking for somebody to represent you. And I hope that they can see a little bit of themselves in my experience and maybe feel emboldened to take a step forward and run for office themselves. You know, if you see a need and you have that voice, then don't be afraid to use it. You don't have to be extraordinary. You don't have to have, you know, been that person who at 12 knew exactly what you wanted to do and then set out and systematically achieved it, you know, got your JD and worked in the legislature. You know, you can, you can be a person who came from the community. You have just as much right to run for office and to seek the support of your constituents as anyone else. So... It'll be pretty interesting to see, like, what sort of things people want to dig up on me and use as fodder for the grist mill, you know, like grist for the rumor mill. But, you know, what can I tell you? I'm a human being, just like everybody else. So I will do my level best to do right by people. And I have my own code of conduct and ethics, and that is that's my guiding principle. I will do everything I can to do the right thing. But I am a human being. Yeah, and I think that's what people are looking for, somebody relatable. Um Many, many years ago, I went to a cultural event in, you know, in college. I remember one of the guys, we had a panel of people from you know, different uh, career paths, and one guy's like, i like to hire a C student. <laughs> He's like, because it means, yeah, you, know, you, you studied, but you also got some experience out there in the world. So, you know. Yeah, there's a, there's a great quote that I shared the other day from Warren Buffett, and this is when you're hiring somebody, you want to look for three qualities, which are integrity, intelligence, and uh, energy. 
And he said, but without the first one, the last two will kill you. Like, you need somebody who has integrity. And I think that's really what we need to demand from our politicians. It's gotten progressively uglier as we've as we've moved through the years. Now, granted, we, and I know there's a lot of people who are a little short-sighted or myopic about what's going on currently. I will remind you, in 2016, people also protested that inauguration and that there was, you know, looting and property damage as well. And there's always been conflict and strife. This is part of us moving the needle forward and then realizing that we did too much and trying to course correct. This is how things go in our country. But we need to demand better of our representatives in terms of integrity. You know, how many of us feel like the people that are in office are telling us the truth? They're being honest with us and they're not gaming for some political gain. I'm not. Like, I'm here just to tell you what I know as best I know and tell you the truth. And I might be wrong and I will absolutely own that when I'm wrong. But, you know, integrity is essential and that's something that we should expect from others. Got it. Okay. Uh, final question is, you know, this is, what else would you like to share? Is there anything we didn't talk about today that you wanted to let our viewers know? <laughs> you know, there's, uh, there is actually something that's a little bit stuck in my craw, so I want to share this with you. So I just joined a group on Facebook that was Explorers of Abandoned Minds. And I did it because they're based here in Arizona and I want an opportunity to see where they're going and what they're doing, not because I'm going to get in their business at all, but I am so tempted to write a message on there and basically say, I'm not telling you how to live your life, but if you go into an abandoned mine, folks, can I give you some advice? Don't go without a spotter. Make sure somebody knows where you are. Beware of falling timbers or cave-ins. Wild animals frequently hang in abandoned mines, and we do have some pretty nasty ones here, including rattlesnakes, the worst of which is the Mojave Green. So make sure that you identify the rattlesnake that bit you in case you have to go to the hospital because there's only one type of antivenom for that. And there is a high probability of trapped gases when you are in an enclosed mine shaft. So it would behoove you to have a methanometer in order to test for those gases because... Mm. In some cases, if you're exposed to it, I mean, you're, you have no time to survive. There's quite a few people who've gone into abandoned mines here in Arizona where they've come into a pocket of trapped gas, and it is an automatic killer. So as cool as it is to find a hole or a shaft in the middle of the desert or what have you, make sure that you engage in incredible safety because you are putting your life at risk. Okay, yeah, I wouldn't even have thought about any of that that you just told me about you know what the dangers of going in a in a mine they are cool though yeah. you know i don't you know I get it. like it's there are plenty of times where i've gone out hiking you know in the state or, or national forest service area and i'll find them and i'm just like that's awesome you know because i'm such a such a junkie for mining and rock hounds and all that stuff so i get it i get the intrigue and it, it is part of our past but it, it is also a great danger and people need to be cognizant of that we've had too many people die as a result of having played in abandoned mine shafts and it is a it, it's an unnecessary loss. It could be easily prevented. So a lot of these could be more than 100 years old then, right? Oh, yeah, most definitely. I mean, that was the first, that's actually like a, a major section of Arizona history was while we were between being just sort of a parcel of land and then a territory before we became a state. A lot of people came from different parts of the country and would mine the heck out of Arizona. So we are built on mining. Mining and, of course, you know, 
cowboys and rustlers and ranchers. We had a lot of that as well. For anybody who saw Tombstone, highly fictionalized, but still great. <laughs> you know, okay. That is pretty representative of what our experience was. Okay. Well, uh, Kim, that's all I had, unless there's anything else you wanted to uh, share. No, thank you so much for having me on. If you're curious to learn more about me or follow my run or would like to sign my petition, assuming you're a registered libertarian or independent voter here in Arizona, you can find out more at yourmineinspector.com, yournextmineinspector.com. So thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely, Kim. Um, we're happy to have you on, and you know, hopefully in the future we can have you back on, and we're, we're always uh, always looking for new people to come on and just have an opportunity to share what's going on. Yeah. Well, thank you for teaching me that maybe I need to come up with a good two-sentence two, two explanation of who I am. I'm like, <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> I'm so used to talking about my background in terms of education and, and you know, work experience. I'm like, how do I put myself in a two-second pitch? <laughs> so. Gotcha. Well, that, uh, that wraps us up for today. Um, thank you for watching, and uh, please continue to watch RockHillVideo.com. Uh, I'm Chris Carrado. Thank you, Kim. Um, and now word from our sponsors.